Distortion typically refers to the process of amplifying a signal until it begins to clip, thus distorting the sound. Guitar players started distorting their signals as early as the 1940s, though it wasn't really until the 60s and 70s that distortion became an art form. It is pretty wild when you think about it that entire genres of music are based on destroying a guitar signal, but I guess it's cheaper than destroying a guitar. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music with distorted guitars, music with clean guitars, and sometimes music with a mix of distorted and clean guitars. We've got a tune with a lot of filthy distortion on it to talk about on this episode, and I am excited to plug in and get into it, so turn up the volume, find a comfortable place to sit, and enjoy the show. I have long found distortion to be a sort of intimidating concept. I'm not a guitar player, at least not first and foremost, though I've played guitar for a very long time. But distortion has just, it always eluded me, at least for a while. I understood that you could get distortion pedals and overdrive pedals. I wasn't totally clear on the distinction between the two. I knew that every pedal sounded different, that like a boss metal zone sounded one way, while a big muff pie or a tube screamer or a voodoo sparkle drive sounded another way. But I was never totally clear what I wanted, other than I knew that sometimes I wanted it to sound a certain way when I played like a power chord on the guitar. That's further complicated by the fact that you can also get distortion from an amplifier or from a preamp, so there are just a lot of different ways you can get distortion, and when I would hear a good guitar tone, it was never totally clear to me where the distortion was coming from in that specific instance. Over time, I came to just trust my ears, and that really winds up just being the most important thing. Just trust your ears. If you're curious about distortion, if you're a guitar player, just find something that you think sounds good. If you have a pretty good amp and one of, you know, any of the sort of well-known good distortion or overdrive pedals, just play around with it until you get something that you like. That's what I've been doing, and it's actually, uh, it works just fine. I don't worry too much about what might be happening on a recording I think sounds good. I spend more time just listening to my own sound and trying to make sure that that sounds good. So welcome back to the show, everyone. I hope that you liked the most recent episode I did about the World 1-1 music from Super Mario Brothers. That was a good time. I don't know when I'll talk about video game music next, but at some point down the road, I'll probably do it again, maybe in year three. In the meantime, though, if you would like to hear me talk a little bit more about video game music, I mentioned this on the last episode, but I also co-host a video game podcast called Triple Click, and on last week's episode, I did a special segment that was a lot like Strong Songs, only it was focusing on the music from the video game Final Final Fantasy VII, as well as its 2020 remake, the Final Fantasy VII Remake. That was a lot of fun, and if you like strong songs and video games, you might like it. So you can find that show at tripleclickpodcast.com, and I will put a link for that down in the show notes. As always, you can reach me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. The next episode after this one will be a listener Q&A episode. So if you have any questions that you would like me to answer on the show, please do send them to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. A few question guidelines. Generally speaking, specific is better. What is this instrument that I'm hearing at this part in this song? What's the technique there? 
they're using to make it sound this way, what's the counting or what's the chord progression here or there. Those are nice and straightforward. I'm also, of course, down to answer whatever philosophical questions about music or or what I think about things. The subjective stuff can get harder. You know, why do I like this song? Why do you like that song? Uh, That's kind of harder to talk about and not always something that I'm going to be able to give as clear cut of an answer on. But of course, really just send any question that you want. I am happy to hear from you. And thanks to everyone who's already written in. As always, you can find me on social media at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton on Twitter and at Kirk underscore Hamilton on Instagram. And you can find Strong Songs on Twitter at Strong Songs. Thank you so much to everyone who has signed up to be a patron of Strong Songs. I thank you on every episode, and that's because you make every episode possible. So I will keep thanking you as long as you keep making it possible for me to keep making this show. I don't have any sponsors. I don't sell ads. Don't do anything like that. I am entirely funded by my listeners via Patreon. So if you would like to know more about how to help me make this show, head on over to patreon.com slash strong songs. All right, let's get into this episode's strong song, and man, is it a strong one. It's built on a stronger foundation than almost anything we've ever talked about, and that foundation begins with a single bass note played in octaves. It's kind of a nice swingy tune, and on top of that bass line goes a nice swingy riff. kind of bouncy dark tune you'd hear as a villain walks into a saloon in a Wild West movie. Except, you know, this isn't quite right. I feel like the bass needs to hit a little bit harder. Yeah, that's more like it. And you know, it could use some drums too, and maybe some distorted guitar. You know what, actually, let's just reimagine this thing. Give me that, but turn the intensity up to like a hundred. There we go. That's right, on this episode we're going to be talking about the Queens of the Stone Age and their 2002 monster rock hit, No One Knows. tell you what I know, and that's that this song rules, this whole album rules, Queens of the Stone Age's 2002 album, Songs for the Deaf, is one of my all-time favorite rock albums, and that's for a few reasons that are actually crystallized by this track. I'm going to talk about all of those things on this episode, we're going to really get into it, and I am excited. Before that, some vital stats. No One Knows was the lead single off of Queens of the Stone Age's 2002 album, Songs for the Deaf. It was written by Josh Homme and Mark Lanigan. Homme is the frontman, guitar player, and singer for Queens of the Stone Age. Mark Lanigan played guitar and provided backup vocals. It also features Nick Oliveri on bass and, perhaps most crucially, Dave Grohl, also known as the drummer for Nirvana and the frontman for Foo Fighters, playing drums. Grohl was not the usual drummer for Queens of the Stone Age. He stepped in to play drums on Songs for the Deaf, and his drumming is a huge part of why I love this album so much. It's some of my favorite drumming, rock or otherwise, that I've ever heard. I adore the way that he plays on this record, and I love the way that he plays on this track. So we're going to talk a lot about his drumming, even though this song is very driven by the guitar, driven by the bass, driven by the vocals, and those are all important parts of what make the recording and the song good, but Grohl's drumming is the thing that just grabs the whole song by the lapels and throws it forward. partly the mix, it's partly the arrangement, it's mostly Grohl's drumming, but at every step in this song, 
the drums just play this role in the ensemble that's a little bit different than the role that the drums usually play. Some of it is the simplicity of the track. This is largely just guitar, bass, and drums, along with vocals. And there's actually some similarity here to Rush's Tom Sawyer, which I talked about very early in 2020. They're very different stylistically, but both are rock trios. Both are kind of driven by bass, guitar, drums, and vocals. And both let the drums play more of a kind of lead role, or at least come to the front at various points. However, Dave Grohl is a very different kind of musician from Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, and as a result, Grohl's parts just, they feel elementally connected to the song. There's something organic about the way that the drum fits in with the bass and the guitar in these arrangements, and particularly in this arrangement, where at any given moment, the guitar might be playing a lead riff, the bass might be really holding things down, but the drums are right in there, providing almost a kind of melodic counterpoint to what the actually melodic instruments that are you know, playing melody notes are playing. All right, so we're going to talk about all of that, but first let's just talk about the way that this song is played, the key that it's in, and the tuning that the guitar is in. So no one knows it's in the key of C. It's basically in the key of C minor. There aren't a whole lot of chords in it. It's pretty riff-based, a lot of power chords. The only other chords in the song really are a G and a B that happens at times, and other than that, it's really just kind of a lot of C minor. So on this recording, Josh Homme's guitar is not in standard tuning. He's actually in C tuning, which means that the entire guitar is just tuned down a major third. So just like with drop C tuning, that means that you take the lowest note, the E, and then you tune that down a major third to a C. And then what he actually does is he just retunes the whole guitar that way. So the A string goes down to an F, and the D string goes to a B flat, and so on. So the intervallic relationships between the strings are actually the same. It's just that everything is a major third lower, so the guitar sounds a lot lower. Now that's just what I'm hearing from this recording. I'm pretty sure that that's how he's playing it. The important thing is that he's got that low C on the sixth string, which he hits quite a bit, and that he's kind of getting this voice and he gets that big, thick C power chord as well that would normally be fingered like an E power chord if you were in standard tuning. Now the reason to do this kind of tuning is because you want to make your guitar sound deeper and darker. That's why you'll see C and drop C tuning more often in hard rock, heavy metal, just sort of heavier music where the guitar just is going to get some benefit out of really ripping into a much lower sounding note. To give you a sense of the difference, I've got one of my guitars here tuned to standard tuning, E, A, D, G, B, E, and my other guitar is tuned to this C tuning from no one knows, C, F, B flat, E flat, G, C. Here's the standard tuning guitar, and here's the No One Knows guitar. Now in fairness, there are two different guitars. The standard tuning is a Fender Stratocaster, and the C tuning is an Epiphone 335 with humbuckers, so it's a darker sounding guitar too, which is kind of contributing to that. But you can hear how much lower it sounds, and it's interesting, you can play, you know, the normal chord fingerings that you already know if you play guitar in this dropped tuning, but instead of playing what would be a C chord, you get an A flat chord. Instead of getting an open G chord, you get an open E flat. It just sounds a little bit different and kind of messes with your head if you're really used to playing guitar. It's kind of fun to experiment with this, especially because you don't need to learn any new fingerings. You're just going to be getting different notes. It's sort of like playing with the opposite of a capo. Instead of putting something higher on the neck to make your notes higher, you're essentially elongating the neck or, you know, elongating the string to make it vibrate at a lower frequency. 
So that's where the guitar is at. Of course, the heart of this song is really in the groove and in the way that the guitar, the bass, and the drums all interact with one another. So let's listen from the top and then we'll put it all together piece by piece. Actually, before we get into the groove, just make note of that intro. Four hits on C minor right at the top. It's going to be important later. Okay, let's get into the groove. Now this is a kind of an unusual beat for a hard rock tune. You don't usually hear hard rock doing this kind of oompa borderline like death polka thing that they're doing on this song. I can't think of that many songs that I've heard on the radio or elsewhere that rock this hard but have this kind of a groove, which is one of the things that really draws me to this song and almost feels like a little joke. Like the fact that they can rock this hard playing this kind of groove with this like swingy polka thing has always knocked me out about this song and really made it stand out to me among a lot of hard rock songs that I like. So how are they doing it? Well, it starts with the bass and Nick Oliveri is also playing in drop C. I'm not totally sure what his tuning is, but he's definitely getting that low C that's lower than the bass's usual E, so he's just playing in octaves, this just kind of boom, 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 on a C, and he plays that a lot, mixed with a sort of a walking bass line that fits with the kind of swing groove that this song has. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but the bass line fundamentally is just a C in octaves on quarter notes. It sounds like this. Now Dave Grohl's drum part matches up pretty cleanly with Oliveri's bass part. He is playing a very straightforward groove. His thumb is a kick drum, his sizzle is a hi-hat, and his pop is a snare drum. And he definitely elaborates on the drum part later on. He uses the toms to great effect, which we'll talk about. But by and large on this song, he's playing on the hi-hat, the snare drum, and the kick drum. And he could rock this whole song just with that stripped down of a drum kit. I mean, the toms are great, the crash cymbal is great and everything. But I think that he would probably sound fine just with those three because of how fiercely he hits that groove. Now, actually, really like drumming along to this song, but I am not going to record my own drum set for this. I'm going to use sampled drums just because it's a little bit easier to work with in the studio. But this is kind of uh, my sampled drum version of what Dave Grohl is playing on that basic groove. Pretty steady quarter notes from the thump, the pop, and the sizzle. So when you combine those with the steady quarter notes from the bass, you get this. nasty little groove in part due to the tempo of the song and in part just due to the way that Oliveri and Grohl are feeling it. But of course it's Hami's guitar part that sits on top and that guitar riff kind of defines this section and in a way this whole song. So he's just playing a C minor chord up on the 7th fret with that 6th string ringing out sometimes on the low C, and then the riff just kind of goes from an F to an E flat to a C, and then he puts it in that kind of swinging rhythm to match up with the bass and the drums. Of course, he's still playing that C minor chord underneath the lead line, so the top note is moving around, he's using his pinky finger for that, and the rest of the chord is just kind of staying put underneath it. 
He also throws in these kind of cool flourishes in between instances of the riff, like he'll do a sort of a dive bomb down the sixth string a lot of times, this kind of neck pump that sounds pretty cool. Something cool that Grohl will do on the drums is a kind of matching figure. Every time Hami does that dive bomb, he does this like snare to the kick and the hi-hat hit, and they match up in a pretty cool way. Sometimes they'll end the riff by going up also. But that's the gist, and it's really a pretty simple riff. A lot of great riffs are actually pretty simple, and this is certainly a great, simple riff. So let's listen back and keep your ears open for all of that. Listen to how the bass is just pumping away on those quarter notes, jumping in octaves from low C to the C D octave up. Listen to how the drums are really pretty simple and just playing that hi-hat, snare, and the kick drum for the thump, pop, and sizzle. And listen to that guitar riff and how it's this just really tight riff where only the top line is moving while the rest of the chord stays put. Ears on, let's listen. I really like the way that Hami uses harmonics. He'll just like hit a guitar harmonic at the end of the phrase. So just on its face, the nature of the groove, that sort of oompa bass line, the way that the drums are playing, that's unusual, but I think that the tempo and the groove really are what kind of lock this whole thing together and make it work. Now I clock this tune as being at around 171 beats per minute. That's how I count it because I count it 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4. It's easier for me to think of it that way. You could count it at half of that. one two, three, four, and uh, you know, you would technically be correct as well, but I counted at 171, and I think that that tempo is just a little bit faster than feels comfortable, which makes this tune always feel like it's sort of falling forward a little bit and kind of tripping over itself. Far more impactful, though, is the fact that this tune swings. This is not a straight eighth rock tune. This tune has a very strong swing feel to it, and that, I think, is really kind of the key to the whole groove. Now, I've broken the difference between straight and swing down several times on the show this year, most in detail on the episode about rhythm and harmony, which, as I always say, you should go listen to just because it's got a lot of good kind of broad information and will be helpful for better understanding just about any analysis that I do on this show. However, I do have an example that I can share here that I think will really kind of drive home just how big of a difference it makes that no one knows swings as opposed to being a straight eighth rock song. So if you played just a standard rock groove and you played it with straight eighth notes, it would sound like this. Play the same groove but make it swing and you're going to displace every other eighth note and make it a little bit later, which adds a sort of a strutting swing to the groove. That would sound like this. Now, eighth notes are where swing kind of lives first and foremost. Eighth notes are what really swing, and while quarter notes and half notes can be played in swing tunes, they don't swing in the way that eighth notes swing. So when like a jazz group is playing a swing tune, the ride cymbal is playing eighth notes, ding, ding, ga-ding, ding, ga-ding, 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 and that's defining the swing. The soloist, be dee ba doo ba doo ba dee bop they're playing eighth notes, and those eighth notes swing. The bass player, though, is probably playing quarter notes, ba doom 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 Doom, 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 doom. And those don't exactly swing, but sometimes they'll play, you know, an eighth note here or there, and those will swing. And you kind of still get that subdivision, even though the part is primarily quarter notes. I mention that because that's what's going on, and no one knows. Even though Oliveri and Grohl are playing pretty much pretty quarter notey grooves, 
Every now and then you'll get and they'll kind of mix it up with that swing feel. Grohl does the same thing with the ghost notes on his snare drum. And that defines the groove into swing right off the bat, and they do that throughout the entire tune. Then, of course, that guitar riff, like that's got eighth notes in it, and that is clearly swinging as well. So no one knows as a largely quarter note driven groove that still swings really hard because of the way that the band is feeling it. That swing rules. It's so central to what makes this song work so well and why I love it so much. And I want to give you an example of a similarly like quarter note driven, very well-known rock song that doesn't swing at all, that plays it totally straight, just to show you how very different it would sound if this song didn't have that swing. It still grooves plenty hard, but it doesn't swing. Check it out. That's right, the next 1979 hit, My Sharona, is kind of similar to Queens of the Stone Age's No One Knows in terms of the groove. It's just that it's got straight eighths. So when you listen to it and count it, it's straight. Check it out. So the groove is just this really kind of straight thing. It still grooves super hard. I mean, this is like a potential future strong song. I love my Sharona, but that boom boom bop boom 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 bop is totally straight. If it's swung, it would sound like boom boom bop boom boom bop boom boom which hey, that actually kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> in rock music, as in so many things, swing makes all the difference. let's get into this verse. The melody to this tune is pretty cool. Hami is just sort of singing up between these C's and E flats and F's. He's got a nice kind of piercing voice up there and it cuts through the mix. Everything else is kind of gritty and grimy, but I like how Hami's voice just sort of pierces through. chords there at the end of the verse are kind of cool. It goes down to a G chord, which is just the five in the key of C minor, but then he just slides up the neck a major third to a B major chord, which is kind of a weird chord in the key of, of C minor. It's not really like where you would normally go. It's a very guitar-y thing to do to just sort of slide a shape up like that, and that's why it works. The notes that he's singing still match up with that chord. It's just sort of not what you would expect coming after the five chord, but I actually think it sounds really cool. So this is the G, the five chord, and that's the B, and then we're back in C. So that's where the backup vocals came in. If you can call them backup vocals, it's more of a sinister whisper that comes in over on the left channel. We get these pills, which is cool and more songs should have weird whispering come in on the second verse. We get these pills to <laughs> it's, it's very good.
This is a little thing, but it's something that I know just because I've learned this whole drum part. And there's a lot of subtlety to what Dave Grohl is doing with the drums. He's playing a very simple part. Like I've said, he's mostly just playing the hi-hat, the snare drum, and the kick. But he'll change it up just so slightly to differentiate each section. Like when it goes down to that G chord, he just kind of eases up on the hi-hat and opens it up a little bit. So it goes from being a completely closed chick as he hits it with his stick to just a slightly open that's slightly more open when he hits it during that section which just causes things to open up just a little bit see if you can hear it listen just to the hi-hat during that main groove it's very closed he's got his foot down closing the two cymbals together which creates a very tight sound and then he opens it up just so slightly And he tightens it back up, kind of chokes it back down. And he slightly opens again. I think that that's a good way to think of Grohl's drumming on this tune in general is he takes a very, very tight beginning groove. It's extremely constrained. And then he just slowly uncorks it. And then, you know, eventually he kind of just pops the cork out and sprays champagne all over the place. But um, but at first it's very, very tight. And there's kind of this fierce energy that he's holding in that the whole song has. It's in that swing. It's in that bounce. It's in that just like mm, ah, mm, ah, mm, ah, kind of feeling. And even the way that they're tripping forward and kind of pushing against the song's tempo, it all feels very bottled up. At least until it's time to finally cut loose. after all of that kind of tight, constrained tension during the verses, during this chorus is where they really kind of unleash the fury for the first time and the band really opens up. This is Dave Grohl's moment and this is where it becomes clear that this song is kind of a drum song more than it is um, a guitar, vocal, or bass song. It's also where that oompa groove kind of goes away and this shifts into a different kind of groove, more of a 12-8 thing, which I'll talk about in a moment. But it's really just the song's other identity finally coming out. We've had quite a bit of this very tight doom down kind of groove and the other half of this song maybe the hide to the song's more tightly constrained Jekyll is this 12a open drum fill power chord thing that they do on the chorus So No One Knows is certainly not the first song that we have talked about on Strong Songs that has a constrained verse and a wide open chorus. That's a common songwriting trick. But it is pretty clear in this song how different those two sounds are. And because the chorus rocks so hard, they just hit it so hard, they open up so big, it really makes the song feel like it rocks a lot harder than it would if they had come in that hard at the very beginning, you know, just fully open hi-hat power chords rocking out. There's actually a lot of delicacy and restraint, even in this chorus you know, the vocals are actually really restrained. And I think that that actually makes this song work, at least for me, better than it might if it just hit super hard and rocked from the very beginning. There are plenty of songs that do that on Songs for the Deaf, and there's kind of different types of contrast across this whole album. This is a very playful and creative album. It's one of the reasons that I love it. But this song really leans into that contrast between the tension of the verse and the release of the chorus. And I think that's why the song works the way that it does. 
So there's a bunch of cool things happening on this chorus. Let's break them down. First of all, the guitar and the bass start out together and they're kind of alternating between a riff and a power chord. Now the riff is just an ascending thing on a C minor scale. It sounds like this. And then the power chord is just a G power chord. It sounds like this. However, the first time that power chord comes in, a second guitar track comes in with a much more heavy distortion on. This might be Lanigan, it might just be Hami overdubbing, but it's just a way darker distortion and it kind of doubles the part when it comes in, which significantly ups the intensity. Here it comes. <laughs> So with all that new distortion, they then repeat that same ascending riff to the G power chord a second time. Then on the third phrase, they actually change the riff so it's a descending line, though the G power chord stays the same. And then on the fourth phrase, they go back to the original riff, just that ascending thing in C minor. So you can kind of break the chorus into four sections, and it's helpful to think of it that way because it's actually very tidy once you do. If you think of it in terms of the guitar riff, it's kind of A, A, B, A. The guitar plays that ascending riff once, then plays it a second time with the extra overdrive on, then plays B, which is a descending riff, sort of a different riff, and then A again, it sort of ends on a reprise of the original riff. However, what makes it really interesting is what Grohl is doing on the drums, because the drums drums actually play this all the way through as a sort of four-part developed statement that works in nice contrast with what the bass and the guitar are doing. So now we're going to go back to the recording and go through each of those four phrases and I want you to listen to what every part is doing. You'll hear the riffs that I just played on guitar, the way that it changes on the third phrase, but also listen to the drums because Grohl plays something different on each phrase, but he's developing ideas from phrase to phrase so they are all related. Okay, here's the first phrase of the chorus. Okay, so that's phrase one. Here's phrase two. Now here's the third phrase. Remember, this is where the guitar shifts to the descending riff. Here's the fourth and final phrase. This is where the guitar goes back to that original ascending riff. Alright, so we've got those four phrases established. Now I want to get a little deeper on what Dave Grohl is playing. Now a lot of times you'll hear people talk about a drummer being very melodic, which seems like maybe a contradiction because drums aren't thought of as a harmonic instrument, much less a melodic one. Even though you can tune drums to certain notes, they don't really play melodies. At the same time, you can still approach your phrasing as a drummer in a melodic way. And I think Grohl is a very musical drummer. Even though he's hitting it super hard and playing really aggressive rock stuff, he's doing it very creatively and musically and, dare I say, melodically. So during this chorus, Grohl is actually soloing. This chorus is as much a drum solo as it is anything else. I mean, he's not playing literally by himself, but their solo fills, and each phrase that he plays builds on the one before it. I'm going to go through each of those phrases and pick them out. I've recreated them using these drum samples, which was kind of a pain, but I think I got pretty close, and I want you to hear the drum part on its own before you hear Grohl playing it in the band so you can kind of be ready for what you're going to listen to. So we're going to go through each of those four 
phrases to pick out and appreciate what he's playing. And you can kind of think of his drum parts as matching up with the riff power chord sort of split that each of those phrases has in the bass and the guitar because he plays a different fill during the riff section and then always goes to a steady groove during the power chord. So the ideas that he's developing are taking place in the first half of each phrase. Okay, so we're going to go through all four phrases, first drums, and then the full track. Here we go. First phrase. Here's phrase two. And here's the third phrase. <laughs> and then the final phrase. love those drum fills because they're so meticulous and precise. He doesn't overplay at all. He chooses every single note very carefully, and it's not actually a super technical bit of playing. It's actually a very melodic and methodical one. That's not necessarily what you might expect from this style of music or this section in a song, you know, where the drummer really gets to unload for the first time. But he's actually very restrained and musical, and I think that's cool. That carries on throughout the rest of the song. Every fill girl plays kind of builds on the ones before it. He restates past phrases. We'll get into that a little bit later, but just from the very beginning here on this first chorus, he immediately establishes that he's going to be playing something pretty methodical and carefully thought out. So to get into a little bit more detail on what he is actually playing. So he's been playing the kick drum, the snare drum, and the hi-hat. He keeps playing those throughout this solo. He introduces a couple of new sounds. He's got two toms, a rack tom, and a floor tom. Those are the big tom-tom drums, and he's got a crash cymbal on his kit as well that he goes up to when he kind of opens things up on that power chord section. Speaking rhythmically, this is where the song really leans into the fact that it's a swing song, and the fills that Dave Grohl is playing on the drums, the solo fills, are actually kind of almost big band cues. They're the sort of thing you might hear from a drummer in a jazz big band like, I don't know, Mel Lewis or Joe Jones or Buddy Rich. Like, here's an example. Here's Mel Lewis playing with the Thad Jones Mel Lewis band at the end of their tune, Big Dipper, and listen to what he's playing on the drums. triplet thing, right? So what Grohl is playing is definitely in that lineage. They're kind of big band drum fills. Maybe that's one reason that I like them and that I like this song. And he's really leaning into the triplet in the swing in particular. Now I mentioned before that this song gets more into a 12-8 time feel. That's something that doesn't really kick in until the bridge, so I'm going to table that for now. But to explain the triplet thing, basically if the tempo here is quarter notes are 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, two, three, four. If you keep that tempo going, a triplet is just going to fit, you know, three notes into the space that two of those notes would normally fit into. So we're doing eighth note triplets and that a lot of the solo is based on eighth note triplets and those are going to sound like this. 
And those triplets are kind of the pulse, the kind of heartbeat of this tune. So each solo fill that Dave Grohl plays during this chorus and subsequent choruses is very eighth note triplet based. The first one he's playing between the rack tom, the floor tom, and the snare drum, different partials of the triplet. Boom, boom, bigga, boom, boom, bigga, boom, boom, bigga, digga, da, digga, da. Very, very triplet based. The second solo fill that he plays just uses the crash symbol and stays on the snare. And then he walks down the toms to get back to that groove. Again, very triplet bass. Triplet, 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 triplet. So even though he's playing different parts of the drum, he's accenting the triplets in this way that makes all of the fills that he's playing feel kind of united in a certain way. The third fill that he plays on that third phrase is the most technical of them. He plays what I think is called a herta, I'm not totally sure. It's like a between the snare and the rack tom. There's still a triplet in there. It's like a triplet and then a 16th note, triplet note, triplet note, triplet note, triplet note. He's just doing it really fast. I think a herta might actually technically be 32nd notes and 16th notes and not triplets. And I, he might be playing that. I'm actually not sure because he's playing so fast. But it's in that ballpark. And that's kind of all that he does. It's the whole fill. And that is actually a phrase that he then reuses later in the song. So keep this one in your ear. But this one's pretty cool and fun to play on the actual drums and sort of a pain to recreate on sample drums. And then his fourth drum fill, the final drum fill, is actually much simpler than that one, or at least less technical. He's just hitting the crash cymbal, and I think a splash cymbal, or maybe just has two crash cymbals. He's kind of alternating between them, with two snare triplet notes in between each hit. So it's like, kind of like that. This is the one that most sounds like a Buddy Rich drum fill. This would not be out of place in a jazz big band. So I hope that by breaking it down like that, it's helped you hear that these aren't super technical or really weird drum fills. They're actually pretty doctrinaire in a lot of ways and very straightforward. It's one of the reasons I like playing this song, because I'm not very good at drums, but because it's so carefully controlled and consistent, I can learn the parts and I don't have to get a whole bunch of gnarly stuff down, like if I was going to try to learn a Mastodon tune or something like that. But because they're so deliberate, you really hear growl in them. Like, I hear his voice very clearly as he plays through this tune, and that's certainly true of later drum solos that he plays as well. Of course, there is one more aspect of this chorus that we need to talk about, and that is the melody. The melody is interesting because while the riff changes at that one point, you know, it's kind of A-A-B-A, the drum solo changes every single time and is sort of developing on top of itself, the melody stays the same, which is nice. It's on top. Um, Josh Homme is actually singing nicely up into his falsetto, you know, and I realize you're mine. And it kind of just repeats that phrase melodically four times, and actually the lyrics are just two phrases that repeat as well. So the melody is a really nice aspect of this chorus, but it's also the simplest aspect of it. It's just one melody over and over again with lyrics that don't really change too much, which is fine because there's so much going on underneath the melody that it would kind of be distracting if there was a whole lot going on vocally and melodically on top of all of that. Okay, so you know everything that's going on in this chorus right now, which actually means that you pretty much have all of the ingredients of the remainder of this song in your ear. I want to go back and listen to the entire chorus now, and I want you to try to hear everything that we just talked about. In reverse order of complexity, the simplest thing is the melody, which just repeats over and over again without changing too much. Slightly more complex are the guitar and the bass parts, the guitar because that second guitar tone comes in, that richer distortion, and then the riff changes up on the third phrase. 
before going back and reprising the original riff on the fourth phrase. Also, the bass kind of diverges on that fourth phrase and goes its own way. And then the most complex and arguably the lead instrument in this section is Dave Grohl's drum set, which he is playing very melodically and methodically, building triplet figures on top of one another with a different fill each time, building toward the same groove on the power chord section. All right, keep your ears open for all of that. Here we go. Just like that, they put the lid back on and bottle the groove up tight for the second verse. So some very fun backup vocals going on there from Lanigan. Over on the right, we've got those two harmonies that are just moving through a C minor, like two-part harmony in a really neat way. It's a clear example of contrary motion. The top part is moving down from a G, while the bottom part moves up and then back down from a C. So together, they sound like this. And then when he sings, with no hope, you hear the whisper over there on the left. And it really is kind of a cool texture. It's not something that I hear on that many tunes. And granted, it's a little bit sinister, but I really like it. I think that it adds a cool dimension to these verses. They keep the same thing going in the second half. Then with a repeated phrase, they set up the second chorus, which follows the same framework as the first one, though Grohl plays a different drum fill on the fourth phrase. Put your ears on and see what you hear. Here we go. So it's time to cut loose for the bridge, and if you think they uncorked it on the choruses, they really uncork it on the bridge. That's really the climax of the song. But before that, that fourth phrase that Grohl plays, I really like that he just changes it up for that. Those first three phrases, he plays identical drum parts, which means he really did figure out this whole part. He's not just kind of playing it, you know, feeling it out as he goes. This is a very deliberate part, and it feels very deliberate. Um, it's one of the things that I like about it. That fourth fill, really cool fill. It comes after that really technical Herita one, and actually has more space in it and kind of breaks up the groove. It's a very confident fill and that's what I like about it. It's maybe his jazziest fill yet. There's so much space in it and he just really confidently sets the whole thing up. It's kind of like this. And then it's time for the bridge.
yeah, that rules. So this bridge rocks super, super hard. This is probably the hardest they hit it in the entire track. And one of the reasons it rocks so hard is because they lean even harder into that triplet feel to the point where they're basically playing in 12-8 time. Now, 12-8 time is just kind of a version of 4-4 that has triplets in each beat. That's how I think of it anyways. What it basically means is if 4-4 time means that there are four quarter notes per bar, 12-8 time means that there are 12 eighth notes per bar. That's more eighth notes than are normally in 4-4 time, and that's because each beat gets an eighth note triplet instead of two eighth notes. So the best way to explain it is just to demonstrate it. So if you're kind of counting like this, both 12-8 and 4-4 time can feel like 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4. The difference is in 4-4 time, the eighth notes are going to be 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and standard eighth notes. But in 12-8 time, you're going to fit three eighth notes into the same space. So instead you get 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. So that sounds really fast and crazy, but if you start feeling it like boom, 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 you get a kind of a 12-8 groove, and that's what they're doing here. It really comes down to the placement of a single kick drum note. One of Dave Grohl's kick drum notes is in a slightly different place on this bridge, and that's what makes it sound more like a 12-8 groove and what gives it that kind of forward propulsion that a 12-8 groove will have. So the bass and the guitar at the beginning of the bridge are just playing power chords on C. It's that big open power chord where you're up on the seventh fret, bottom string is ringing out on C, and they're just hitting quarter notes. So they're not really playing any kind of a definite 12-8 thing. They're just playing quarter notes. The drums are playing a really open thing just up on the crash, just kick, crash, and snare. And if it weren't for the one kick drum note that I'm about to emphasize, Grohl's groove would actually just be a pretty straightforward groove like he's been doing this whole time. It would sound like this. The change that he makes for the bridge is he begins playing an extra kick drum note, which adds a triplet. So in the kick, he's playing a triplet figure. Then when you combine it with the snare drum, sounds like this. And when you play it with the full kit, sounds like this. So it just really emphasizes that feeling of eighth note triplets. So add the guitar on top of it and you get just a kind of choppier, more jumpy beat. So listen back to the recording and just keep an ear out for that kick drum, that boom, 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 down in the thump that's sort of emphasizing the triplet and bringing out a 12-8 feel. Here we go. course, just like the chorus, but flipped around, the bridge goes from a power chord to a riff, then back to a power chord, and the riff is pretty sweet. So rhythmically, the riff is just quarter note triplets the whole way down, which just further emphasizes the triplet-y 12-8 feel here. Boom, 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 triplet, triplet, boom, 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 boom. It is the apex of tripletiness in this song. Now harmonically, it's just power chords from a G to A flat to B back to G to F and then back to G. That half step between G and A flat gives it that kind of Phrygian sound, Phrygian being the third mode of the major scale that has a flat two as the first note. In fact, the fact that it goes from G to A flat to B, the major third, is a Spanish Phrygian sound. That is a mode of the harmonic minor scale, and guess what? I'm not gonna break all of that down because we gotta keep moving. 
quick bass breakdown sets up the guitar solo. Or is it a guitar solo? I mean, maybe it's a drum solo. kidding of course but this section would probably be labeled as the guitar solo if there was a chart of this song but it's really kind of a dual guitar and drum solo and while I like what Josh Homme is playing you know Queens of the Stone Age isn't really a big guitar solo band to begin with there are some really cool guitar solo sections on songs for the deaf but they're not like that kind of a band they're more of a riff band you know a little bit harder a little bit more about the riffs and Homme is playing just you know kind of on C minor over this section what he's playing is cool but I always gravitate like my ear is always pulled to what Grohl plays because it's so methodical and melodic. It's actually his most melodic playing on the whole track and it's because he develops his ideas so clearly. He'll make a statement, then he'll develop it, then he'll develop it slightly more. Then he adds more subdivision and then he concludes by calling back to the Herta riff that he did during the choruses. And the whole thing just ties together extremely tidily. It's kind of my favorite thing in this track so I want to break it down for you. Let's break out the drum samples one more time and uh, take apart Dave Grohl's drum solo during Josh Homme's guitar solo. So the way that Grohl opens the solo is actually a great example of melodic drumming. He starts with a very clear statement. It's this. He starts on the snare, then he walks down the toms to the kick drum. Immediately after that, he reinforces that statement by making it again. Then he expands on the statement in the most clear-cut way. He just expands the statement. He makes the first part of the statement go on twice as long. It's very neat, right? Each subphrase ends with that walk down the toms, bega de boom. So that's the kind of recurring statement that ties it together, and he's expanding the statement before it, but he's ending every phrase the same way. It's kind of like the drum version of a rhyme. In fact, this opening phrase kind of matches up with a limerick rhyme scheme, which I bet a lot of you know. Like, here's an Edward Lear limerick. There was an old man with a beard who said it is just as I feared. Two owls and a hen, four larks and a wren have all built their nests in my beard. It's pretty cool, right? So listen to the whole drum solo, just my recreation, and listen for how it kind of rhymes in that limericky way. So the next phrase is longer, but it ends with the same rhyme, which ties it back to the first phrase. Listen to the second phrase. Then his third phrase is denser still for the first half. And then he ends with a dramatic callback to that hair to fill all the way down the toms to the end of the line. It's like a super hard rocking paragraph and I love it so much. So here's my recreation of Dave Grohl's entire bridge drum part. And then right after that, I'm going to play the original recording and just try to listen to what he's doing and pay attention to how he's phrasing and how it fits with the guitar solo, particularly how when he goes into that hair riff at the end, it matches with what Josh Homme is playing on the guitar to bring the whole thing to its logical conclusion. Here we go. Okay, queens, your turn.
so good. The drums make it work so well. I also love how they just build to the end of that phrase so strongly in a lot of other ways. There's the fact that, as I mentioned, that hair to drum fill matches up with the guitar riff. There's also this really weird sound. It almost sounds like strings slowly bowing up their necks, climbing up. I think it's some sort of a guitar effect that's doing that. It sounds almost like a horror movie, and the whole thing is building up and building up, and where's it going? And then it just cuts out and goes back to the bass. And again, it's just yet another example of how well this song uses that contrast of really like bottling things up and then letting them explode and then bottling them back up really violently. And it shifts between these modes in a way that creates a really dynamic sense of the song in general. It's very dramatic and very effective. So listen back to the end of that solo section as it leads into the bass solo. Pay attention for that weird ascending string sound, the way that it all feels like it's going somewhere and then it cuts out to the bass. And then listen to how they bring it back because it's another jack-in-the-box moment where it goes down and then pops back up, keeping the listener off balance. Here we go. Just like that, we're back into the closing verse to bring things home. The band has said what they came here to say, so there's no reason for the song to go on any longer. If you think back to how Grohl ended each of his solo fills, that rhyme that he used to tie them all together, it was that figure where he walked down the toms from the snare down the toms to the kick. It's how he ended each of his phrases, and it's also how he ends the song. And if you needed one more example of how tightly constructed this song is, think back to how it began, and compare that with how it ends. And that's No One Knows. Four hits at the top. Four hits at the bottom. And a flawlessly crafted rock tune in between. And that'll do it for my analysis of No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age from their killer 2002 record, Songs for the Deaf. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm really glad to hear from so many of you who are enjoying the show, and I'm glad that so many new people are discovering it. If you're a new listener, welcome. I really hope you like the show. And if you're one of those people spreading the word who is responsible for those new listeners, thank you very much. Thanks, too, to all of my Patreon backers. Like I say every episode, you're making it possible for me to make this show, and I just can't express what it means to me that I get to make this show, because I really love doing it. You can find the names of half and whole note backers in the show notes. Next episode will be a Q&A episode, so feel free to send me your cues at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. This episode's outro soloist pretty much had to be Mr. Dan Nervo on guitar, so stick around for Dan, and I'll be back in two weeks with more Strong Songs. 